Hey everyone, welcome back to Wild and Unprotected. I'm your host, Ethan Lehman, and I'm here with my co-host, Koji Samalde. Hey, what's up everyone? Today's episode is going to be an interesting one. We're getting out of the water and onto the land with our next guest, Teresa Whipple with Ursa Major. She's a bear guide and conservationist in Juneau, Alaska. Hope you guys enjoy the show. Let's start the show. everyone welcome back to wild and unprotected our podcast where we talk to some amazing conservation efforts and people all across the world doing really good things for habitat restoration and overall conservation of the wildlife that we are trying to protect today our guest is Teresa whipple also known as the bear lady uh, up in alaska yes folks alaska is a state Today, she's our guest, and we're super excited to dive into what she does and who she is. So welcome, Teresa Whipple. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Glad to have you. So thanks again, Teresa, for joining us. Um, for our audience out there, give us a little bit of background of who Teresa is and, um, and Ursa Major. Yeah. Um, so I kind of got the nickname Bear Lady uh, because, well, just to be very out there with it. I'm a little bit bear obsessed. So it works out really well for me that um, I more or less spend my entire year with bears. And it started, uh, gosh, in 2009 in British Columbia. And I started working there as a bear viewing guide. And I eventually have transitioned up to Alaska for most of my bear viewing uh, trips and guided um, explorations, but it kind of, so the, the interesting part was when I first came to Alaska, went to my first bear viewing spot, I thought, God, we, the, the bears here act so weird. They are so, they just act so weird. They act so strange. Like what is wrong with these bears? I can't figure it out. They're like, they do all this weird stuff. And so I started kind of asking around, like, do you think the bears act weird here? And they're like, no, what are you talking about? And then I go back to British Columbia and I look at what the bears are doing there and like, yeah, those Alaska bears, they're just so weird. It's so weird. And, uh, and then over the course of over a decade uh, and visiting all the different bear viewing areas that you can go to along the coast in British Columbia and in Alaska, I realized that actually all the bears act differently in every different place. And so I have in my, my bear logs and my bear journals, like broken it down into almost like the different dialects that these bears speak in different locations. And every time I'm taking a trip up to Katmai, I have to revisit my notes to remember that the dialect of the bears there is this, this, and this, so that when I'm having to have a conversation with a bear, that it, I'm being polite in by, by their standard. And so, yeah, I've accumulated this like 
this mountain of, of bear journals that um, show me how different they can be from one place to another. And that's how I ended up getting to become the bear lady, ultimately, was my like obsession with these different ways that these bears act in these different locations. And it's, it's, it's pretty neat stuff. And I was chatting with some of my bear world buddies not too long ago. And uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I can claim this, but we think that I might be the only guide to have worked and or visited every single bear viewing place on the West Coast. That's amazing. Because a lot of the, like the South Central guides stick to South Central and a lot of the BC guides stick to BC and Southeast guides stick to Southeast. But um, yeah, I've, I've, I started uh, down on the Southern end of the British Columbia coast. And now I work all the way out to the, to the West side of coastal Alaska. So um, covered a lot of ground and the bears are really cool and really different in every place. That's pretty cool. So what exactly does a bear guide do? <laughs> um, th that's a good question. When I'm giving the short form answer, I say, I lead people into wild places to look at wild bears. That's the, the, the gist of it. So do you also protect them? <laughs> uh, yes, it is also my job to look after their safety, but also the safety of the bears as well, because it's, you know, when people end up misbehaving or accidentally misbehaving, um, the bear is usually the one that pays the price for our mistakes. So it's a, it's a dual process. Yes, it's my job to make sure they stay safe. And it's more the process that I make sure that they feel safe. And, uh, and then the bears, I make sure that we are behaving and acting responsibly because ultimately we are the visitors in their habitat and their home space. And so as long as we're, we're going in with the attitude of respect, then, then yes, it's also about making sure the, the bears are not paying the price for what we find ourselves doing and adventuring and playing outside in bear habitat. Before we go any further, um, you talked about talking to bears and different bear dialects. Can you expand on that? Yeah. Um, they, you know, bears, they communicate really well and they do a lot of it in body language. And that is why I think they're so easily misinterpreted and misunderstood because I hear really often like an example would be a bear standing up on its hind legs. Most people will take as an aggressive move. And most of the time, it is a bear that is uh, just trying to gather more information. They're either trying to get a better line of sight on something or they're trying to get a better smell of something. So the standing up is more an inquisitive thing. But, you know, proximity wise or near or far, a bear standing up on its hind legs is pretty intimidating to a human. And so a lot of the time, you know, they get labeled as the bad guy when they're their body language, their behavior is simply, uh, you know, just a bare version of like, what's up? And <laughs> it was the, I, there, there was a, the, one of my hardest lessons in learning a new bear dialect was the first time that I was working in Katmai National Park for the first time. And I was with a longtime bear guide friend and we were sitting in this meadow and he, 
And he explained, he was like, okay, you see that bear over there and that bear over there, they're going to like come and they're going to sit down and they're going to sit down. And that's their way of saying to each other, you know, you're cool. I'm cool. Okay. We'll go about our business. And in my brain, I'm thinking, what the hell is he talking about? (laughs) Oh, never seen or heard a bear conversation like this. Like, what is he, uh, like I, I know he's a really good bear guy. I know he is. I respect this guy so much, but what the hell is he talking about? And sure as anything, these two bears come from opposite sides of the meadow and like check each other out. And they both just sit down and they see each other sitting down and they're like, oh, you're cool. You're cool. Okay. And then they go about their business. And my mind was blown. I'd never seen a bear conversation happen between two bears like that before. So clearly I went back to my journals that night and was like, star, sitting down, star, sitting down. It's a big one. It was a big one for that particular region uh, on the coast. Wow, that's incredible. And like, you know, you can compare bears to like many other mammals out there. It's like how we're trying to understand how dogs bark and how dogs communicate. You know, there's that level of, um, you know, uh, knowledge that we do and don't have we, we don't know what they are actually saying to each other but i think it's important how you noted body language um especially i i didn't know that when bears stand you know you're right i assumed that it was a dominant pose but for you studying bears for so long i can only imagine how that has been proven wrong many times um but let's 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 take a step back um before we go in very deep about conservation i want to know about the company name, like Ursa Major. I know it's Constellation. I know it's something that has to do with um, particularly Constellation, but let's let's dive into how you tied it into your company. So I can't say I actually can take all the credit for the name of the company. It was suggested by a good friend of mine, but... And then I kind of, kind of had to hit my head and be like, "Dur, of course that's the perfect name, but it's, you know, the, so bears in our culture uh, in general, they are like, we as people are actually obsessed with bears, whether we recognize it or don't recognize it anywhere from Disney movies to Winnie the Pooh to expressions that we have in our own language, you know, a bear hug or hungry as a bear. We're just like, mysteriously obsessed with them. And I think it's because one, they're fascinating and also because we fear them to some degree. And that combination of the two, they occupy a little special portion of the back of our brain. And Ursa Major is in fact uh, the Big Dipper as a constellation. Well, every most people are familiar with the Big Dipper and, and it's one of the most recognized constellations in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, But the Big Dipper is part of a larger constellation that is the shape of a bear, the Big Bear. And when I started as a baby bear guide, I kind of had this short form presentation that I would do that was a little bit about kind of the different bear species that you find in North America, but I tied it into all the ways that we recognize bears within our culture that we do and don't think about. And I had a real focus on the constellation Ursa Major because there are hundreds and hundreds of fables and stories surrounding these constellations. And 
Most people are familiar with the Greek and the Roman versions of the mythology, but if you look into Native American lore and even you know, popular stories, they it's it's there. They've always been there, and they've kind of always guided us, and they've always been in the sky. And when I was coming up with the name for the company, a buddy of mine, he actually just sent me a T-shirt. He had a T-shirt printed out. And it said Ursa Major um, LLC on the back. And it had the constellation of the Big Bear. And he didn't tell me about it. And I opened it. And I was like, oh, my God, genius. Because I'm obsessed with constellations anyway. So it was perfect. I love that. Do you still have that shirt? I do, yeah. I should have it framed in the Ursa Major office one day when I get a proper office. <laughs> <laughs> we'll hold you to that. <laughs> well, then let's let's dive into the the real bear conservation portion of Ursa Major. Uh, what are you, what are you guys doing on the conservation front, um, and and how does building this company really push bear conservation forward? So, Ursa Major. So, as a from a business standpoint, the way. Ursa makes money is by offering services with bear safety training and with guided trips and, and that sort of a thing. But I always have had in the back of my mind that when I am no longer physically capable of being in the field anymore, that I, I want to focus in conservation. And so Ursa sort of runs the, the dual interest of as a business and then what can it do from a conservation standpoint now? And the idea is to build that and build that. So in my later years, it can be more or less the sole focus of the company. And I, you know, I'm, I'm just so grateful for what bears have done and what bears have given to me that they can't stand up in a political arena and fight fair for their own spaces. And so I just consider myself um, standing up for them in ways they can't do for themselves. And a lot of what bears face in North America specifically is habitat loss. And that's actually true for bear species across the world. But Habitat loss comes in a lot of different forms that you may or may not think about. And certainly like clear cutting a forest and building a city or a town is, is kind of an obvious version of things. And then a not obvious version of things would be, you know, a big tract of uh, wild land and us just building even just a two lane road or a two lane little highway that bisects that big piece of land. Uh, studies have shown that then bears will avoid that road and end up staying on one side or the other side of that tiny little two-lane highway. And in that way, their food sources, the ones that they've come to know, are now reduced in the capacity that they're not going to explore their home range in the way that they used to. And maybe the other side of their home range is buffered by things that they don't want to or cannot then explore. So it's something as simple as building a two-lane road. Uh, and then in Alaska in particular, there are a lot of uh, big industries, oil, mining, forestry, that are constantly sort of in the, the budding spaces with 
with bear habitat. And bears are large animals that need large areas. And so Ursa Major does, in a, in a small perspective, simply donates money to organizations that I feel are doing really, really good work in bear habitat conservation arena. Uh, and that's like on an annual basis, just a couple donations made. And then in the, in any other capacity that I feel I can lend a hand or Ursa Major will take, take a role in any way that it, it, it can find. And that goes from, so I'm terrible at social media. I should really learn to get better about it because I know what a platform that is. But an example of a, like a small version of things would be, so I live in Juneau, which is in Southeast Alaska and Southeast Alaska as a whole has this, um, it's called the roadless rule. And the roadless rule is protection uh, in Southeast specifically from clear cut logging of a lot of these islands. We have a lot of islands and very recently, a number of, a couple of years ago, they were considering removing the roadless rule to allow a lot of clear-cut logging. And so myself and my my bear peoples in Southeast, you know, we really took up arms because this is our backyard now. This is, this is stuff that we're going to see direct local impacts from. And me and my buddy, we did a, a bit of a <laughs> camping, we call it camping, camping trip. And we visited one of the inlets that was on the chopping block. And we did a bit of a walk, did a bit of a camp, bit of a pack raft and documented these bear spaces. And then uh, we're able to take a lot of that imagery and publish it and rally and get petitions and, and fight for keeping the roadless rule in place. And the good news is that it is still in place and that was approved somewhat recently as well. And and that's a that was a social media platform version of things that because I'm so bad at social media, I it was a big challenge for me being out in the field and doing the camping part and documenting bear spaces and looking at bears, how bears were using that habitat and where they go and where they found their food sources. That part came second nature. But then translating that into social media is still a big challenge for me. And it's one that that uh, I'm recognizing as a as a platform to reach more people. Um, so that's a learning curve. And and then sort of on the bigger end of things, going small, medium, large, is uh, I was talking with you, Ethan, about it previously that there was – so Juno is the state's capital. And every winter and spring, the legislative session happens here. So all of the senators out of the House of Representatives, like every all, all lawmakers from all over the state come – and they meet and they stay in Juneau and they lock themselves up in the Capitol and they, they do all their important talking. And there was one year, a couple years ago, that I was contacted by the president of the Friends of McNeil River organization. And he said, Hey, are you, are you at home? Can you, by the way, go represent bear viewing and the industry of bear viewing and the fight against Pebble Mine at the legislature? It's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, you got it, man. <laughs> uh, and that was another real learning curve, too. So I what what happened was I took 
myself as a bear viewing guide representative, because in South Central alone, bear viewing is a $10 million industry. And at the time, there was a proposal to start a project called Pebble Mine, and it was going to affect terrestrial, marine, all kinds of stuff, Um, a really hideous mining project that it was just the size of it in general. The grandeur of this project was going to just really irreparably just decimate this area of Alaska. And even though bears are terrestrial critters, these coastal bears, they marine conservation ties into them so specifically because for these coastal bears, salmon are their biggest and best food source. And of course, salmon are a marine conservation situation. And so there's, there's a lot of overlap, but. And this is the Willow project, um, correct? This was the, the one that I, that I was sent to, to represent was at the time, the Pebble Mine project. And then the Willow project is the most recent, ConocoPhillips oil drilling project that has, I think, has most people up in arms because Biden promised a restriction to climate change projects. And this goes against uh, what he said he would do. So there's a lot of climate change. But this is the Willow project, which is the current proposal, is on the north slope of Alaska uh, on the northern coast of Alaska and has the potential to mostly affect polar bears in the region. And polar bears in the Arctic and climate change is an absolutely hot topic. Uh, but Alaska is constantly always refacing because it is such a gold mine, literally a gold mine for mining and for oil and for all these big industries. It's just sort of like project after project after project that is proposed in some form or fashion is going to have effect on the landscape and the wildlife that live there. And picking bears as a sort of an icon for that conservation protection works well because they're considered an umbrella species. And because they need really big areas, if you protect bear habitat, you're not just protecting bear habitat, you're also protecting wolf habitat and deer habitat and, you know, even down to snails and slugs that become endangered and and the little critters too. So they're, they're a, it's a nice one to pick because they're so charismatic that people will pay a little bit more attention to them as well. Uh, And the, but, but Alaska will, will constantly see these big projects continually proposed and finding the middle ground between the fact that these natural resources are things that we use in our everyday lives and versus what kind of effect our use of those natural resources have on the wild spaces that we want to protect. That's, that's always going to have to be the the fight or the middle ground or the way, you know, eventually politics, that would be lovely if they, if they took the middle ground road of looking at things like that, instead of just how much money they're going to get out of these projects. And it was when it was Pebble Mine, that was the project that I was representing bear guiding as an industry for in the political session in Juneau that year. And it was an interesting 
it was a, it was absolutely a new form of conservation attempt that I had tried before. I'd never been stood up in a in front of a bunch of politicians and have had to say my entire income is dependent on tourism, basically, uh, and bear guiding specifically as a as the tourism industry that that I survive on. And uh, ultimately, what the message was, was that Pebble Mine was going to affect the industry. But I wasn't allowed to use the words Pebble Mine uh, because it was such a polarizing topic within the in the political arena period. It's such a, it was such a polarizing topic that I wasn't allowed to use the words pebble mine. So I had to talk about it without talking about it, uh, which politicians I believe are really good, you know, dancing around words. And I am not, I'm a more of a direct communicator. And so it was, so, you know, I had to talk about how big projects can affect my income or affect the state of Alaska's income via, you know, it was, it was so weird and hard and like, um, just talking about something without using words that I thought were good representations of those things. And it was definitely, I think it was the very first time a bear viewing guide had ever been introduced on the floor of the Capitol before. And you know, there was just kind of like a little murmur that went through the crowd when when I was introduced and told, and they were told what I did for a living. And it's interesting because everyone in Alaska knows that, you know, that, that picture of the bear standing at the top of the waterfall and the fish is jumping up into the open mouth of the bear. That's so representative of Alaska. Like when people think of Alaska, they think of fish jump into bear mouth. And yet, you know, so, so everyone could recognize that, but then they didn't necessarily want to protect that image. Um, at least they didn't for a certain kind of a cost. Or probably didn't really know, probably don't really know how. Like, you know, like that's like you were saying, a conversation that isn't really brought to the public in that capacity. So I could only imagine how difficult that was to stand at the Capitol and speak on behalf of not only yourself as a guide, but many other bear guides all across the coast and inland as well. Um, man, that's, that's a good, that's a good fight you're fighting. Um, so I just, I want to backtrack a little bit, you know, a few issues you, you noted were obviously bear habitat, um, is a huge, you know, factor in conservation and what your efforts are. And even with, you know, bears being an umbrella species, I like how you noted that. Because a lot of uh, misconceptions that I could see happening are people probably think of bears as something to fear, you know, and just always be on the lookout, have your bear spray, you know, obviously be cautious in the wild. <laughs> we don't own the wild. We are just, you know, coexisting, right? So when bears come to mind, people probably think that like, hey, you know, if we're going to go out here, there's going to be bears and there's a likelihood of us running into one. Um, but what you're doing you know, helps protect 
us even being able to have bears in the wild and to conserve their habitat is one thing, but to battle the projects that keep being proposed, I'm sure it's like one punch after another. Um, and those two things alone, I'm sure keep you very busy. A question I have for you though, um, I know when it comes to like bear hunting, and this is a topic that I'm not versed in at all. So I'm just, I'm extremely curious. Um, I know that when it comes to taking tags for bears, after you've taken a bear from Alaska, I think it's like you can't hunt for another one to four years for another bear. Um, does this, do you, do you find your, your efforts um, battling like the hunting side, like the game side of bear conservation a lot? Does that come into your business and through your conservation efforts? Man, that's a hard, the hard heart hitting topic is the hunting topic. Uh, it is, I do not uh, jump into bear hunting as a conservation effort, at least not, not to date. I have not. The, in British Columbia, they ended, they ended the trophy hunt for, for grizzlies. And you can still hunt black bear, um, but black bear is more edible. And so generally speaking, in Alaska and in BC, if you're black bear hunting, it's usually you're going to eat the, the meat. And then for the grizzlies, for the brown bears, uh, less edible and therefore more in the trophy realm. British Columbia ended their trophy hunt for the grizz. In Alaska, it is still legal. And yes, there's a lot of headbutting between the people who would like to keep that bear in an area where it can be viewed by another person and another person and another person year after year after year, sees more value of the bear that way versus the person who sees the value of the bear tacked to its wall. And there are so, you know, there's science behind bear population studies and what hunting does or does not do. I've heard so, so many different claims of things. Like when you take, I've heard hunters say that when you take the really big male bears out of the population, you're doing the population a favor because big male bears kill cubs. And if you take the big ones up out, then the cubs have a better chance. And <laughs> uh, male bears and female bears kill cubs. And also there's been no long-term study to show that this has any validity. Plus there was another study that shows that when you take the big guys out, it makes the juveniles actually more aggressive because there's no big guys to like smack them down and put them in their place. And uh, yeah. so a lot of science, a lot of studies, a lot of claims on both sides. And ultimately, I don't think we have a good idea of what kind of effect we are having on populations other than in Alaska in particular, we do know that we have a healthy grizz and brown population. 
And so it can sustain whatever hunting is taking out of it. And it comes down to what I think it comes down to is just the position in your heart, whether you're okay with it or you're not okay with it. And there's money aside, political gain aside, conservation aside, it comes down to what you're okay with in your heart. And because it always boils down to that, conservation specifically, it's hard to gain traction on a, on a heart-based topic right? instead of a science-based topic. Right. So more of a moral and ethical decision in your own heart that you have to make when, you know, you go out there and try to take something from the wild that, you know, is just part of the ecosystem, you know, that's really tough. Yeah. I couldn't imagine, you know, tiptoeing around that and, and being in such a position where you have, you know, your platform and your power and, you know, you have, your political standpoint, but also just to like almost feel powerless in that sense. Um, I'm sure that's very tough, you know, moving forward though. I, I think that there is a, there is a light because this is from my own head. I mean, looking at hunting practices all across the world, they were much different 20 years ago than they are now. I think there is traction gaining on, you know, the ethical side of, what, what practices were, you know, in place 20, 30 years ago are definitely frowned upon now, you know, and how much more we can really massage that into the point where it's like, okay, no, these are actually very important species that we need to have. And that are, that are super important to the longevity of not only its own ecosystem, but like humans as a whole, like how we play a part. So I think it's a very interesting time to be alive, to, to kind of see, you know, where we've been, where we are now, and where we're headed. And I think that Ursa Major plugs into this, um, whether it be from the conservation or the business side, I think that you're, you're playing a perfect role in, in all of this. So I thank you personally for being able to speak on that. I know it's not an easy topic, but I was just curious because I don't know what I don't know. And I've also never been to Alaska. So those are just thoughts that come to my mind. So. <laughs> When it comes up, when I'm around, well, you know, when it comes up, like I'm around a, a brown bear, grizzly bear hunter, like, you know, your, your adrenaline just kind of spikes a little bit because you just, it's, it, you know, it elevates you in some way. And I had a very, very interesting conversation with a, with a brown bear hunting guide on Kodiak Island. And Kodiak is famous for big, bears and therefore a population, a very popular destination to go and do hunting for, for Kodiak bears for the, it's a coastal brown bear called a Kodiak bear. And he, you know, it was, it was difficult to have the first breach of the conversation because I took him bear viewing and then I was so angry with myself that I felt like I was helping, you know, a hunting guide learn more about a species that could then potentially help him just shoot one instead. And I, so we struggled through our first conversation and a couple months later I bumped into him again and we had, I would call it a beautiful conversation and he told me 
that when he started taking jobs as a hunting guide, you know, the 50 grand in his pocket was sending his kids to college and he couldn't say no, regardless of how he felt about what he was doing. It's required that if you're a non-Alaskan resident that you have to hire an Alaskan guide and you can end up paying 40, 50 grand for that guide. Wow. And he couldn't, he couldn't say no. He has a, he has a family, he has a mortgage, he's got kids and, and he is still, still a hunting guide. But what he told me was that he's got this inner conflict when he's in the field now, when he's taking people hunting, because there's a side of him. There's like the thrill of a hunt that like you're out there and you're tracking and it's cool. And it's this, you know, you're really in the wilderness and you're, you're having that moment. And then he said, now, every time the bear goes down, there's a little part of his heart that breaks a little bit more. And he isn't sure how many more years he's going to be able to do it because of that. I had no idea the money was so big in that. That's crazy. Yeah. The hunting guides used to make more money than the viewing guides. And at, at this point, the viewing industry makes more. Uh, neither, neither the hunting or the viewing makes money for the state, uh, which is why the state is more or less hands off of, uh, doesn't doesn't get in the middle of of the viewing and the hunting, uh, but Alaska period is a is a state where you come to hunt. Not I mean not just talking about bears. I live in Alaska too because uh, <laughs> all the food that comes up here on the barge is so old by the time it gets here. You know, if I want fresh good meat, then I I go for a deer. You know. And not the weirdly frozen chicken that I can get in our grocery store. I've never even thought about that. Big state for hunting all around. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a very, very thin and gray area. Um, I mean, same for here in Florida when it comes down to, you know, taking any species, whether it be a marine based species or, you know, on the land. Um, it's all I think it's all it, call, it all comes down to the education side of it um, and and backtracking to what you said earlier, where it lies in someone's heart, you know, that decision that they decide to make um, is a huge deciding factor for, you know, how these, how these hunting and viewing oppositions kind of play out. It's, I'd be, I'd be curious to see, you know, how, how it starts to unfold um, in the future when it comes to um, the viewing side of things can you speak a little bit about how you're implementing any new practices or if there are new things that, um, because like, when it comes down to the business side of things, where is there innovation with, with bear viewing and how has bear viewing become more of a paid thing than the hunting side? That's what I'm curious to know. That was a lot of questions rolled into one there, Koji. <laughs> Um, uh, let's see the, I think a lot of credit to why bear viewing is 
now such a big money maker can go to Katmai National Park. They every fall have a fat bear week competition, which is slowly gaining popularity. And, you know, they, they take before and after pictures of bear pre-eating salmon and bear post-eating salmon. And you, it's almost like, a, um, you know, during football season, you bracket who will end up being the winner for the Super Bowl. And Fat Bear Week looks a lot like this with individual bears that get bracketed and pitted against each other. And you go and you vote for who you think the fattest bear is. And Katmai also has... Oh, so it's literally fat bears, like actual fat bears. Actual fat bears. (laughs) I just think of Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a it's a really fun way to get people interested and involved from afar. And Katmai also has uh, Brooks Falls, which is one of the more accessible places to see bears. And it is the place that everyone takes the famous photograph of the fish jumping up into the mouth of the bear. And so it's accessible. It's available for people. It's the, they are not terrible at social media like I am and they host fat bear week. And now they even have one of those cameras that you can clue into and watch the bears at the waterfall when you're at your computer in Chicago, stuck at your desk and you need a little break from nature. They've got that going too. So, so Katmai has done a lot for the national park has done a lot for the popularity of bear viewing as a, as something to do as a tourist and you can go bear viewing all over the state, but they have probably done the best job at uh, increasing the numbers. What was the other part of the question, Koji? <laughs> um, I'm intrigued now with this bracket. I'm, I'm going to need to look up this, this fat bear tournament because that was always <laughs> running through my mind. He forgot the rest of his questions. <laughs> the other part of the question is like, what is Ursa Major doing to innovate? You know, like um, your side of it. Innovation. This is probably going to sound maybe very small scale, but for for me, it is doesn't feel small. That a lot of what Ursa Major does is provide training to companies or individuals. Uh, for in in the in the realm of bear safety, and so the department, Alaska Department of Fish and Game, and the Forest Service in Alaska are the two organizations that are responsible for putting out bear safety messages. And I don't envy the job that they have to do with trying to. Oh, good. put out as many messages as they can for the general public for whether it's tourism or whether you end up fishing in the same river as a bear or whether you're like all the different activities and all the different places. And it's, it's rough, but what my, what my company does is it takes those very, very, very good messages. And then if you are a company or an individual, let's say an individual and you want to go fishing in Alaska, but you're worried about sharing a river with bears. 
So you go to the fishing game website and there's just this, you know, three pages list worth of recommendations and you're reading all of them and like, okay, that one sounds good. Oh, I think I can do that one. Like, how do I know if the bear is doing that? And, uh, blah, blah, blah. am I going to be able to recognize what does it mean by this? And so what Ursa Major does when it's in its training capacity is that it would provide a class for people who want to go fishing in the same, and they might end up in the same river. And it takes those messages from Fish and Game and Forest Service, and it breaks it down into very, very accessible feeling information, number one. Number two, uh, it only takes the messages that would then apply to the circumstance of you fishing in that river. And you don't have to look at the information that tells you, you know, how to hang your food bag from a tree 60 feet away from your campsite. You know, that's not something that is going to apply to your activity. So let's just pass over that information. And so innovatively, I suppose the cool part for me is always I guess, reinventing the message in a way that is going to make the most sense for that person. And that is, I think, why Ursa is unique to the bear safety training industry as a whole is because I have, I have made and you can make, and there are already videos like bear safety videos that you press play and you watch your prescribed 45 minutes. And that's the end of that. And I've always found that at the end of those, I don't feel all that much more confident going and playing in bear habitat. And I felt like I broke it down the other day to like the weird music that they put in the background and the fact that the guy who's narrating is like, and sometimes bears will charge another bear. And you're like, well, you know, they're going to charge another bear. Like, why is that guy so calm about it? Come on, (laughs) you know? And so, so I get to, I think what feels innovative to me, and it may sound small scale, but I've seen the impact firsthand of what happens when I make the information very accessible to the person in front of me. And uh, that's maybe jumping into why I do what I do is because I feel like it's making a difference for that person. I, I personally don't think that's small scale at all because that's exactly what we're trying to do here at Wildscape. We're trying to make what we call digestible content. There's so much content that's out there that's calm. It's kind of boring. It, it doesn't really address any misconceptions that are out there either. So the whole reason we started to do what we're doing is to make that digestible content. So people who have no idea of anything about conservation, anything about the people that work in conservation or the animals themselves can understand that holistically. So that's not small scale at all. If anything, that's really innovative and that's what we're trying to do. So that's, that's awesome. With that being said, do those training? That's cool. Yeah. Digestible. That's a good word. Yeah. yeah that's, I, I think it might work well for um, the bears as well. Um, but to continue that. Yeah, do I'm those, totally stealing that. <laughs> do it. Do those training sessions ever allow you to really address any common bear misconceptions? And and if so, what are some of the misconceptions that are out there that you'd like to, to address? Absolutely. All the time I get to address the misconceptions, which is nice. Starting very basically from the bear that's standing up 
and that that's not necessarily aggressive an aggressive move, even if it can feel intimidating that from the bare version of things, that's not aggressive. Um, the, I think not everyone, right? Because bears, some people are ready to like go into the Alaskan wilderness and ride a bear like a horse because they think they're not afraid of them. And then you've got the people who come and they're like, you know what? If I never seen a bear while I'm in Alaska, that's fine with me. And you get, you get, you know, extremes on both sides of things, but definitely I have it in my mind, at least whether it's true or not true that like one of the misconceptions about bears is that they like hide behind trees and wait for tourists to go by. And then they're like, ah! you know, like pounce and ready to go. And that's kind of whether that's, you know, something that people have in the back of their heads or it's something that I've made up for people. I'm not sure, but um, just being able to take that, get them to take that breath and recognize that even though that bears can elevate you emotionally, your stress level, your adrenaline, whatever it is, that um, when you look at them, if you if you can pull the fear factor out for half a second and take that breath then you just get to see how fricking cool they are. And that is a lot of what comes out of the training is that I get to address their cool factor. And then I get to couple it with respecting their cool factor. And then you've got someone who has the right attitude going in. Yeah. Talking about respecting an animal, I think bears are interesting to tie it back to the earlier point of the conversation where you talked about bears are kind of ingrained in our society. Um, thinking about little kids and getting teddy bears, you know, how important that is to a child. You'll see a child carrying around their little stuffed teddy bear. Have you ever had someone who had a stuffed animal growing up talk about that experience and then come to you during this training session and say, can I snuggle this bear? <laughs> yes, uh, that has absolutely happened. And I used to sometimes carry around a little Winnie the Pooh uh, bear for, you know, help with help with breaking the ice or, you know, tossing the bear. I was like the talk, the talk stick around the group or something. Absolutely that at post training, there's a line of people waiting to go one on one with me to tell them their own bear story. And I love hearing them. So that works out great. Some of it is teddy bear based. And a lot, of, I think there's a little elf these days that like is going around and getting its oh, picture everywhere. I think it's like an elementary school thing. I'm not really sure. Yeah, elf on, that's the one, elf on the shelf. And many times I've had, when I take people out bear viewing, Multiple times in a season, I will have them bring their, they, they will have brought their elf on a shelf, but it's a little teddy bear. And they do the same thing in their whole travel and all with their whole holidays and vacation. They take their little bear and then it's always a highlight for them to get their, their bear with a bear in the background too. And I had a teddy bear that once hang out with my Winnie the Pooh for a whole day on like the the bow of my boat 
for fun. The people drag their teddy bears, even as adults all over the world. I feel like that would be something that would be really cool as an introduction point, you know, for young children to get into bear conservation later on. The, in fact, the story of teddy bears is, I guess, not based in conservation, but it's got even got like, even it hits on conservation because the story of teddy bears is that they were named after Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. And Roosevelt himself was a, he was a naturalist, uh, but he was huge into conservation, huge, huge into conservation. He was also a hunter and he was hunting for black bear in Mississippi and he wasn't having a lot of luck. So his hunting party found a black bear, uh, tied a rope around its neck and attached it to a tree and presented it to Roosevelt to shoot. And Roosevelt refused. He said it was unsportsmanlike. And so he refused to shoot that bear. And that this, the, the picture of Roosevelt with his back to the bear refusing to shoot it became a political cartoon. And then eventually an entrepreneur's wife in New York stuffed the first bear and wrote a letter to Roosevelt asking if she could please call it Teddy's Bear. And that's, and that's I didn't the know that. teddy bear history story. It's a pretty good story. Mm-hmm. Well, with, with that being said, I think we're at a good transition point to maybe go into some of the fun, wild, and crazy stories that you might have about bears. Do you have any particular story you want to kick us off with? <laughs> uh, I get asked frequently if I have any good bear stories. There's probably top four most frequently asked questions. Number one is how close do you get? Uh, and then probably at number four is, uh, do you have any good bear stories? And of course, I think I've got great bear stories, but I'm a total bear nerd. So, you know, my story, my, my good version of the story may not be someone else's good version of the story. And I do think that a lot of the time that I get asked that question it comes out when whoever's asking it, it doesn't usually come out sounding playful. It comes out sounding like they want to know if I've ever been attacked is what it comes out sounding like. Like um, they want to hear a scary story. They want to hear, you know, where the a story where the bear was the villain and I still got away is the way it comes out sounding a lot of the time when it's asked. And I, my best guess is that when it is being asked like that, it's coming from that fear-based part of our brains that bears can inhabit. And so when I'm asked that question, I usually do a quick judgment factor on why I think they're asking that question. And if it is playful I'll give them a playful response, but if it sounds like something they're concerned about, then I'll usually pick a pretty benign bear story over what they think they're going to hear. And something I noticed, this was maybe last season, as far as the funny bear stories go, because this was a bit of a, I don't know why it kind of sent a light bulb off in my head, but you know, when you're in the field in the middle of the wilderness, call of nature happens to everyone. And 
when you're in chest waders and it's raining and you've got 10 layers to take off and you're a female in particular, you know, it's a real process. You got to plan ahead. There's like <laughs> strategy involved. I give tutorials on how to most effectively pee in the you wilderness. Give tutorials on how to shit? Uh, not like mostly we, we go with the number one as the example and we don't, we, we tend <laughs> to not go into the number twos if we don't have to. But I absolutely give tutorials to women on how to pee most efficiently when you have on all this gear and you've got to get it off. And then, you know, there's the, 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 like the post factor when you're just trying to get it all back on quickly, but then it's raining. And it's, so there's a, there is a tutorial. And it's a side of conservation was, people don't normally get to see. <laughs> well, there is, you know, so there was a moment not, and I had, and I had this deja vu feeling that I was in the field and I had a couple of ladies with me and we were, we were doing the tutorial and kind of taking the, the bathroom, the call of nature break using the facilities as it were. And I have this weird theory now. I don't know. It's not a theory, but it happens so frequently that of course, the minute you got your pants around your ankles, that's when the bear shows up, right? You take a bear-free zone as much as you can, and then your pants around your ankles and the bear shows up. Well, that in itself, you know, depending on your reaction, could make you pee faster, could halt the whole process. But more than once, and I mean more than five times when this has happened, the bear makes eye contact with people as their pants around their ankles and they're being, and they're just like, I don't know, checking you out, thinking whatever's going on is interesting, but there you are just hanging out. Just like, and that bear's just like staring you right in the face the whole time. <laughs> they don't know why, but I, that's the trend. <laughs> You think it's maybe because bears have good sense of smell? I mean, sure, they do. I don't know if that's the reason they're staring you in the face when you're trying to understand what's happening. I don't know. I don't know. It just seems like it always happens that way. Certainly, we have taken group pee breaks where no bears show up, but when they do, they just stare you in the face while you're peeing. So it's I have witnesses. I can I can I can provide witness accounts for all of these things I'm saying, I swear. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I just keep seeing this image of like <laughs> a poo bear peeking around a tree like what are you doing? <laughs> and they're just watching you. Yeah, they caught it. Yeah, pretty much. Where they're just like over a little crest in the hill that's just a little ways off. Maybe they're doing a like giving you moments. They just stop walking and they're giving you the moments to finish what you're doing before they continue on. Maybe they're being polite. I don't know. <laughs> so as much as you don't want a bear like you know staring you down while you're while you're trying to tinkle, how, have you had? Have you had any uh, instances with with bear spray that you can account on that might be more or less uh, embarrassing or <laughs> painful? Embarrassing? Did you do that one on purpose? Maybe. Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
Bear spray. Yes. Uh, studies show that bear spray is the number one most effective deterrent to use when you are in an encounter that would require uh, a strong deterrent. And so in that way, but it, so I always carry it. I always have it, but it is not the one tool for every occasion. So I usually carry a variety of deterrence on me so that I can decide in that moment, which one would be best use. And ultimately bear spray for any of us that have carried it on a regular basis knows that you more frequently discharge the spray on your best friend or your own self more than you do on any kind of bear in any kind of encounter, which kind of comes back to the four most frequently asked questions that I get is, have you ever had to use your bear spray? That's probably number two or three. And uh, the, I think, and again, I usually take that moment to judge, at least try to judge from where that question is being asked. Is it a, is it a fear-based question that they want to know, have you been attacked by a bear and you had to defend your life by using bear spray uh, versus maybe someone who also has a tendency to carry bear spray and they're ready to tell you the story of when they sprayed it on, you know, inside their mom's car and then couldn't use the car for two weeks sort of a thing. Uh, and bear spray stories get good. They get real good. Um, I had a buddy once who, oh, he's going to kill me for That'd telling this story. story. But Let's continue. It's a great story. Continue. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he was, he was fishing in a river, but it was a hot day. And so he was, he was topless for, for his upper half. And he ended up bear spraying himself. Like there was a bear that was, you know, like he was in the river too. And he thought, oh, I'll just get rid of this bear real quick. But his spray, I don't know if it's expired or what happened, but he, he, he like had turned it around and did one of those like right on him. And he almost, he basically blinded himself, but he got it on his whole upper half. And as we extracted him from, his situation, he went into, oh God, we extracted him from the situation and we, and we took him, we took him back to the lodge and he ran himself to the shower to try to get the spray off of him. And I don't, he was having a brain fart because it's oil based. So if you put water on it, it spreads. <laughs> and he went to the shower and then spread the spray all over his nether parts. And then, you know, next thing we know, we see, we see naked guy screaming towards the kitchen and he took one of those big old tubs of, I can't believe it's not butter. <laughs> and he shoved his nether parts into the butter, hoping to relieve himself from the itching and burning sensation that he was experiencing from the bear spray in his nether regions. Balls and butter. <laughs> Balls and butter. That's the episode name. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely going to kill I don't know you. how that ties into conservation. <laughs> it, it ties uh, in perfectly. Yeah. Sometimes shit happens when, when you're working with animals. <laughs> and sometimes your yeah. balls end up in butter, yeah. I guess. Yeah, but for him. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it was unbearable. 
Oh, Jesus. Oh. <laughs> you saw it coming. <laughs> We've officially gone off the rails. Man, I feel bad for him. I could only uh I could only imagine having to dip my balls in butter. <laughs> for not for not for pleasure's sake. <laughs> what? <laughs> We're off the rails now. We're definitely remedy. off the rails. Oh, home, home remedy. Oh man. Now, now that needs to be tested. If it really is a home remedy, if you if you bear spray yourself, yeah. you better get it off. I, I did. Yeah, I don't know. I have a. I I generally recommend baby shampoo, but you know. I think we need to do a follow up social media post for this. And and have bear spray testing. <laughs> I have another question that's a, that's related to bear spray. That's a little more fun. Um, have you ever seen SpongeBob? No. You've never seen SpongeBob. Okay. Well, there's this episode in SpongeBob where they have underwater sea bears, and what they do is essentially they t- their bear spray is putting a circle in the sand underneath them and the sea bear can't cross the circle. Do you spray the bear spray in a circle to prevent the bear from coming to you guys? Uh, No, the special secret about bear spray that I don't think it's very well known that after a while, like if you were to spray it on the ground in real life, if you were to spray it on the ground like that, after a period of time, the smell would actually attract a bear. Uh, so it would, no, not create a boundary. It would create an attractant on the ground. SpongeBob has it not exactly right, but I see the, I see the, I see the idea behind it. When we're being silly and we are, as 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 guides, when you're trying to lighten the mood, you you make the joke about applying bear spray like it's insect repellent. And, you know, you spray it all over your body and it keeps the bears away. And one would be miserable if one did that. But every once in a while, you hear a good story of someone giving that a go. <laughs> I could imagine. SpongeBob's out here creating mm-hmm. uh, misconceptions. I mean, it is a cartoon. <laughs> Thanks, SpongeBob. So you guys have seen firsthand and heard firsthand what not to do with bear spray. If you're fishing in a river. Um but that'll that'll move us on into our uh, final section, our final questions as we wrap up. Teresa, it's been awesome uh, chatting with you. Um, the highs and the lows, always good to be, uh, you know, learning about other conservation efforts across the world. Um, tell us uh, in our audience a little bit about, you know, or a lot of it about why you do what you do um, in a nutshell. Well, the nutshell version is I love it. That's uh, that's the short and sweet nutshell is I really enjoy it. I enjoy spending time in the wilderness. I enjoy spending my days with bears. There's a quote that now I can't remember who said it, someone famous, I'm sure, but that the that bears presence put the wild in wilderness and without them, it doesn't feel like a wild place. And that, that hits home. I am a person who tries to stay relatively disconnected from 
I mean, I got a phone only when I started my business because that was a requirement of owning a business. And before that, you know, I, it was a lot of letter writing. And I like when I disappear and I, I'm not in touch with the the everyday grind of the electronic world that we that I feel like we're sort of living in these days. And bears always just bring me back. They bring me back to they bring me back to nature. They bring me back to Yeah, my myself in a way. And so I have a real draw to them personally. But I think one of the other reasons that I, I do what I do is at this point, I've now seen the effects that my training can have. And it's, it's powerful. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, a million examples jump to mind when I think about people that have gone through some of my trainings um, people that have known coworkers or friends that have been attacked by bears who the fear factor has gone up so much that they don't even want to step outside anymore and helping them come back to a place of analyzation is, is helpful for them. But I guess that's, that's kind of like a general, a generalization. There's, I remember a fella I was do I was leading a, a polar bear viewing trip and he found out that I own this company and he and he came to me and he told me that he was uh he he was from it was like Minnesota North Dakota area and he loved to go hunting with his sons for for ducks and geese and things but they lived in hunted in black bear country and he had a it wasn't necessarily a fear of bears but he he did he was getting less and less comfortable with going hunting with his sons because he well, he was he was worried about having a negative interaction with a bear and he saw that I the the bear deterrent that I carried was a was a flare and he was curious about it and wondered if it was something that he could take with him when he was hunting with his sons and he approached me sort of you know, off the record and at the end of the day. And he explained this to me and he said, I don't want to have to shoot a bear, but I don't want to be attacked by one either. And I took him into an empty field outside of town and we practiced every deterrent that I had with me. We, we practiced with him using all of the different styles until he got confident in one in particular and he felt like he could go back home and comfortably spend that really amazing time and experience with his sons and not have that nagging worry in the back of his brain that he would either have to shoot a bear or be attacked by one. And that was, that was, a, that was a huge one for me. And it was just one guy and one family. but it made a difference for him. And just as recently as a few days ago, I was giving a bear training and I was running through a really difficult scenario with one of the people there. And I thought I had assessed 
throughout the training in the beginning, I thought that she, of all the people there, had the most bare experience, or at least the most out of everyone in that room. So I gave her a very difficult bare scenario to run through, thinking that she would be the best person to handle it. And I think I was right, but there were just silent tears you know, starting halfway through this, this walkthrough, because even when you're just doing a talk through of a bear scenario, you can get that elevated feeling. And she had it, she was, she was adrenaline rushed in the classroom setting. And she just, she just sees silent tears coming down her face. And, and it, it's, it's, it's difficult then to actually continue to make her walk through a scenario like I had given her, uh, which was essentially a mother bear defending her cubs, which is really occupies some really dark spaces of the mind. And she powered through it. And, you know, we had to take a time out in the middle and I encouraged her and said, you haven't done anything wrong. You're not doing anything wrong. You've got this. And just falls to the wall. She went through it and just stayed with it. And at the end of it, whoo, man, did we have to have like a, you know, a power hug after that one. But she, she's going to go into those spaces now with the job that she has. And she's going to, she's going to rock it. She's going to respect the space of a bear and she's going to, respect her own space is what she needs to feel safe too. It was a, it was an intense one. It was a serious one, but it's moments like that, that I am able to see the direct impact upon individuals and whether it's just one person every once in a while or a lecture hall full of people, it's, it's palpable. It's amazing. That's incredible. Do you literally, with those instances alone, answered my final questions of, you know, what makes it all worth it? And it seems like, you know, when you get to work with one, with, with people that, you know, are going through things like you just stated to help train them through those scenarios, that is, that is very impactful. And I'm sure there's a fun side to it just from the human connection alone, but to be able to work through that, um, with people individually is, is huge. So it's huge. It's, it's a, it was a learning curve in a way too, that because, you know, in Alaska, in Alaska, everyone is a bear expert. Uh, and I've had some very discouraging interactions with people too, who feel they, you know, they've had so much bear experience in their own life that I can't teach them anything. And in fact, they're the ones that can teach me things instead. And I do believe that your personal experiences are huge learning and teaching tools and relying on your own experiences are absolutely necessary. But there, but everyone in Alaska is a bear expert. And there is, there's one guy that will stick with me till the end of time because he told me that uh, his company, you know, they didn't need my training, that he was going to do their their training because he was pretty sure that we taught the same thing. And so he didn't need to pay me anything to teach the same thing that he was going to teach his employees. 
And, you know, I was getting one of those weird feelings and I thought, uh, well, yeah, what, what, what training techniques is it that we both do that you're going to, you're going to teach your employees? He was like, oh, you know, I'm sure you do it too. You do the hand thing. He's like, the what? He's like, you know, the hand thing. Oh yeah. Bears there. They just, you know, bear safety hand thing. I got this. Don't you worry. And I was like, just, just, run me, just run me through the hand thing. And he said that bears, all bears, when you encounter them, they look at what you're holding in your hands. And if you're holding nothing in your hands, they do not attack you. But if you are holding something in your hands, then they will attack you. And I said something to the effect of, what are you, what are you holding in your hands? And he was like, well, it can be anything. It can be a, a water bottle. It can be, you know, as long as your hands are empty. So if you just empty your hands and show the bears that your hands are empty, then, then they don't attack. And in my brain, right, I'm reeling with everything that is wrong about what this man is saying because it's utter bullshit. And he ended with, yeah, I've only had to kill like four or five bears that way. Oh, that took a yeah. turn. That took a turn, yeah. And uh, But that's what he was teaching his employees because that was bear safety as he saw it. Brutal. <laughs> that, wow. that makes us really happy that your organization exists. So four or five bears don't have to get killed that way. There you go. Thanks. <laughs> well, I think that's a good note to end the show on. Um, one last piece before we wrap. How can people get in contact with you? How can they find you? Oh, I will be better about social media. I swear, if that is the best way for people to do it, I do have uh, Ursa Major has Instagram that I'm learning, uh, and it's Ursa underscore training. So bear training, but Ursa is the Latin word for bear. So Ursa underscore training is the Instagram. I, and I also have a good old fashioned website, which is Ursa Major TC.com. And the TC is for training and consulting. So Ursa Major Training and Consulting is the full name of the company. So website or Instagram. <laughs> Perfect. Well, you heard it here, folks. Teresa Whipple, Ursa Major Training and Consulting, the Bear Lady in Juneau, Alaska. So if you're ever there and uh, right. you want to stop by and get some proper training um, and be educated in the most impactful or tell me your bear stories or avoid bear spray, uh, reach out to Teresa and she's your, <laughs> she's your, she's your best point of contact in Juneau, Alaska for anything bear related. Thank you, Teresa, for such an amazing show. Uh, it's been an enlightening experience getting to know you and knowing what you do and all the battles that you fight day in and day out um, on behalf of myself and Ethan um, and Wildscape Productions. That's a wrap. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I know, um, you know, we got connected through sort of a marine conservation thread, uh, but it was really nice to add a little bears in the mix. So thanks for, thanks for having bears come to your show. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Wild and Unprotected podcast brought to you by Wildscape Productions. Follow us on social media at Wildscape Productions. For more information on our documentary series, Shoreline Stories, visit wildscapeproduction.com. Stay tuned for our future episodes as we have so much more in store for Wild and Unprotected.